This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is a monthly show looking at the world of comic books, graphic novels, and sequential art. Coming up is an interview recorded with Chris Riddell, the current children's laureate, talking about his work on cartoons, illustrated novels, and comic strips. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first of the afternoon sessions for graphic writing. I'm very pleased to have with me on stage Chris Riddell. Um, you did your first political cartooning in the early 80s. Were you doing um, children's illustration at the same time, or were you just concentrating on cartoons for magazines? Well, my heady days, Alex, tended to be the end of the 80s. The heady days of the early 80s, I was here as a student right. at, okay. at Brighton. But um, being influenced by, mm. by illustrators such as Raymond Briggs, who mm. was working on Where the Wind Blows, um, which were, uh, When the Wind Blows, which was... You know, extraordinary thing. It also was the era of the Falklands War, so um, and, and Raymond also did a, a book called The Tin Pot General and the Iron Lady. Um, so, uh, in a sense, I was seeing how uh, one could work in something like children's books, but also have some sort of political sensibility. It was in the uh, late 80s, I, um, I actually got a call from the editor of, uh, one of the editors at The Economist, asking me to uh, do a series of illustrations for um, a series on um, the European Union, the expansion of the European Union. It's still called the EEC back then. And I had no idea why he called me um, until we were in a lift a couple of, sort of weeks later and he said he had read one of my children's books. Uh, okay. It was called uh, The Trouble with Elephants. And something in it spoke to him about the sort of uh, the expansion of the European Union. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't know what. But anyway, so, so I started doing a series of... of um, I suppose illustrations for The Economist, and that was seen by someone setting up a, a new newspaper, The Sunday Correspondent, uh, and they asked me in to do an editorial cartoon, mm. which is a sort of, it's a different thing. You know, I was ed- enabled to sort of editorialise. And this is a terrible thing to say, but as luck would have it, the Iron Curtain came down. Mm. Um, apartheid was being rocked on its, you know, um, uh, the South African establishment was rocking. There were sort of all these big, big, world events going on, um, just about the time I started uh, doing cartoons. So there was never a problem. There was Mm. never a dull week. You know, sort of one week, you know, East Germany was collapsing, and the next week, you know, Mandela was, you know, in talks. Uh, It it was an extraordinary time, um, and a great time to start doing something like this. So I I got a lot of confidence, I think, um, on that. And then the Sunday Correspondent closed. Mm. Um, The day after, Margaret Thatcher left. Uh, you know, was defenestrated, which was just possibly my favourite ever political moment, was her getting into the car and then just peeping out of the window with that glistening tear. Um, just, I, I, the only sort of clip I enjoy more than that is John Redwood trying to sing the, the Welsh National Anthem. So the only other, sort of, those two are, are my favourites. And so then I, 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 um, I was owed £400 by the Sunday Correspondent, which closed overnight. I'd never got that back. But the Independent called me and offered me a job there. So uh, I've worked in newspapers ever since, and now I'm on The Observer. So, uh, so when you, you studied here doing a traditional illustration course? Very traditional. Yeah. Um, before, before Mac um, <laughs> books and the internet and whatever, yeah. all those sort of things. Um, yes, we 
hand-lettered and we did graphics for the first year and then we were allowed to life draw a lot and then after we'd done all that we were allowed if we were very good to illustrate just mm. a little bit. I mean I suppose Raymond Briggs is an ideal person for you to have been influenced by and studied under since he does both children's books yes. and more political things like When the Wind Blows and his background in children's illustration gave him the artistic uh, gravitas in order to be able to tackle more political issues and not only that he was the only person doing full-color graphic novels before they were even called that because That's he wanted true. to work yeah. in comics and the only way you could do full-color comics is if they were published as children's books. And Raymond came through um, the picture book uh, yeah, boom in, exactly. in, in that sense. So he, he did a couple of very big and very successful books in the um, early 70s and through to mid-70s, which enabled him in the 80s to really take advantage of, of, of the picture book boom and, and the cost of printing, you know, in a way, you, the full-color Printing was prohibitive unless you were doing a high-cost item like a, like a children's picture book. And it's a route I think a lot of us sort of followed. Yeah. Um, I always remember at my degree show um, standing um, by my work and having sort of various people come through and being too shy to sort of actually talk to anyone, but standing very, you know, quivering in case anyone said anything sort of nice or, 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 or critical. And... Um, I couldn't take it anymore. I left to get a cup of tea. I came back and I missed someone because we all had comment books. And the man from um, 2000 AD had been around. Mm. I think it was just before it was 2000 AD. Uh, it was called Warrior or Warlock or something. But he yeah. was the chap. And I, I missed him. And I'd love to have seen it. And I always think if I'd met that chap when he came around, he left a very nice comment and said, do get in touch. If I'd met him rather than Sebastian Walker from Walker Books, I think I'd have taken a different uh, route and possibly yeah. have gone into sort of the comic world rather than the children's book world. I mean, at that stage, I'd take any job, you know, if, if anyone offered it to me. <laughs> so did you, how did you get your first gig uh, illustrating a children's book? Were you sending samples to various authors, including Walker? Um, yes. I mean, what happened is Sebastian Walker came to Brighton okay. Art College, so with it, well, sort of trying to poach Raymond Briggs, um, okay. and I was collateral. I had a, a collateral damage, but collateral benefit, I suppose. Mm. Um, so it was pure luck. I happened to be the only student in the studio when Raymond. Mm came in with, with Sebastian and, and his designers. So they fell upon me. And I, as luck would have it, I was doing a children's book mm. um, as, as a project. So it, it, Sebastian, wanting to impress Raymond, just said uh, to me, would you like to do a book? And I said, yes, I'd love to. And I remember him ruffling my hair um, uh, when I had more of it. And uh, the next thing I knew, I went up and he com commissioned me to do, to do a, a book for Sainsbury's. <laughs> um, so it was pure luck, Alex. I mean, it just. Um, but then, subsequent to that, after um, uh, graduating, I went and, and did the, the the normal round of knocking on doors and um, visiting publishers. And I spent a lot of time doing that, generally being commissioned to do various things, but not really a, a full blown picture book, mm. uh, until I went into uh, a publisher called Anderson Press and met the chap who ran it, who's a chap called Klaus Fluger. And he said to me, I mean, I showed him my, my work, and he said, you know, this is fine. He had a German accent. He said, this is, uh, this is perfectly fine. But then he said, um, but where are your stories? Mm. And I hadn't even considered writing at that stage. I just thought I was an illustrator. That's what I'd, I'd do. And I, 
I knew I was talking to the sort of head chap at Anson. I knew that he could, he had the ability to commission me if, if he wanted. So in a sort of desperate bid to, to get a commission, I said, well, I, I have got a story class, but I didn't bring it in. And he said, come back tomorrow with your story. And so <laughs> instantly I sort of, you know, sort of broke out in a cold sweat, but I managed to sort of get out of there and I went home and I wrote a story that evening. And, and so Blind Panic is a good you know, sort of uh, motivator. motivator, absolutely. Um, so I wrote this thing took it back in, and then Klaus, in that way that he, I subsequently learned he did, he said, oh, this is fine, we'll publish it. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, right, okay, so now I've cracked it, that's what I need to do. Yeah. I, I need to actually provide my own content, you know, mm-hmm. uh, rather than wait for people to, to ask me to illustrate their stuff. Um, and it's interesting, actually, the more people I meet who work in, in, in comics, that, that is such a great... That's what I love about a lot of comic people, mm. the, 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 the people who write their own comics and illustrate them, do the whole thing. I think it's, mm. it's, it's one of the great sort of attractions for me. Yeah. I mean, you said you hadn't been a storyteller before in the sense that you were illustrating other people's um, stories. But presumably, uh, depending on the project, you were given a fair amount of artistic license in how you would interpret the text in making the illustration that went with it. Um, no. No. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, back then, I mean, you know, I, I was, you know, just out of college. Mm. Basically, you know, I had to do what I was told. Okay. I mean, and, and what tends to happen is um, uh, the people commissioning you, the designers, will, will have been in a cover meeting. They'll have mm. been talked to by editors. They'll, they'll have a very set idea of what they want. They'll have a, a brief. And as a young illustrator, I had to follow the brief. And mm. what tended to happen, I worked in a certain style. I, I used pen and ink. Um, I sort of had a crosshatch style. I used watercolour over the top. I mean, I still do, in a way. Mm. I haven't uh, changed too much. And there was a, a very popular illustrator back then called Joe Wright, who used to do the covers for the Tom Sharp novels um, in a very... He, he was obviously a student of Robert Crumb and, and had that, that quality to him. Mm. And I remember the first commissions I, I, I got when leaving college was to be a more affordable Joe Wright, and this is sort of quite traditional, you know, if you can't afford the real thing, you find a you know, student or someone just had a college to pretend to be them. Mm. Um, but I learned a lot, you know, so they, they kept asking me to sort of, could I do this in a Joe Wright style? So I, I wasn't proud, so I, I did that. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it, you realise if, if you've made it, um, it's when there's a few people out there who are being asked to be a cut price you. <laughs> so, I mean, that's always good. Yeah. Although in terms of becoming a storyteller then, when you were given uh, that book by Klaus... Had you done many illustrations, one-off cartoons already? Because I guess many of those uh, tell a single story in a single frame, that they have a history that you can see. Yes, I mean, this sort of work came later, I think, after I'd I'd, I'd been working in picture books for a long time. So I I spent most of the um, late 80s, early 90s, through to mid-90s, working in picture books, and then started to sort of, you know, work in, in, in newspapers a little bit more. Um, and then I began to uh, do various other things. Um, I, was com- I was asked by the picture editor on The Observer to... Uh, they had a big problem, um, the back page of The Observer. I'd just joined the paper. And they had a back page diary um, section in the main paper. Um, and the picture editor never knew what, what, what the columnist was going to write about. So one week he'd have to go and find a picture of a dolphin and the next week he'd have to find someone sort of on a trapeze and, you know, it was costing him money to try and yeah, get yeah. these pictures in. Um, and so he came to me and said, look, I've got this space and I have to pay this amount of money. You're on a fixed contract, you know, so I don't have to pay you. Would you fill this space? <laughs> 
And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, that's great. So, the so page no, it was just a little column where the, where the photograph on the diary would go. They just wanted a little cartoon strip. And my brief was just fill that space. Doesn't matter what it is, you know. So um, being a, a great fan of the archers, um, you know, all, all illustrators tend to sit and listen to Radio 4 or, or whatever. Um, I loved Marjorie Antrobus in the archers. So I thought I'd call this strip Antrobus. And uh, because they just wanted it to fill a space, nobody bothered what I did. So I just did a series of absurdist um, mm. four-panel strips. Mm. Um, if you do go on my, my uh, website, on my sketchbook um, bit, on my, my, you, you can, if you trawl back through, through the pages, you'll find some antrobus. And mm. it is just absurd, really. It's, it's just ridiculous stuff, but not dissimilar, in a way, to Sleep of Reason. I think the Sleep of Reason became what antrobus was. And Antrobus sort of lasted quite a few years, and then the editor sort of decided to redesign the paper, and they didn't need it anymore, so it just went. Yeah. But that's uh, was was there an, an ongoing storyline from week to week, or did you tell a single story in every four panels? Single story in every okay. four panels. So um, one of my great ambitions would be, uh, maybe I'm too old now, but would be to do a, a, yeah. a, a sort of almost sitcom character yeah. uh, cartoon strip. You know, yeah. one of those great ones that build up. Um, I was just given the other day, I was at uh, publisher Canongate, mm. and they, the uh, editor said to me, would you like a, a book? You know, there's beautiful books on, on, on the shelves. And she said, you know, would you like any of these books? And I, I looked and I thought, wow, you know, so many beautiful books. And then I saw that they published the um, complete Charles Schultz, you know, Peanuts, right. um, the whole lot, in three yeah. impressive volumes. So I said, could I have those, please? And she handed them to me. And I went out <laughs> clutching you know, the entire Peanuts. I mean, just yeah. work of genius. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of being able to tell a longer story, have you ever managed to do more than four panels in terms of sequential art? Uh, yes, a little bit. Um, I've done various books. I've flirted with it in things like uh, Alienography, the, 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 the book about aliens, um, uh, as, as little... Um, inset sort of comics within the book. Mm. Um, and I've just finished one now. Um, again, a little insert in the back of a book. I, I, I did a book called Goth Girl and the Ghost of a Mouse last year. I've just finished the sequel, which is called, forgive me, um, Goth Girl and the Fate Worse Than Death. Uh, and in the back, there is uh, a little book called The uh, Biography of a Bear. Mm. And it tells the life story of a South American spectacled bear um, from her sort of mm. birth through to um, uh, romantic involvements and, and finally a resolution um, with no words, but all in the sequence of um, pictures, 16 pages okay. of, of comic strip. En route to a graphic novel. I think so. It's at the beginning, <laughs> in the baby steps, yes. But it's interesting, though, when you obviously write and illustrate a book like the Goth Girl series, you're doing text and images separately. In terms of combining the two, it's a different project than when you're working with just a writer that you have to kind of work around what they're doing. When you're doing both yourself, as a storyteller, how do you choose what's going to be just in the text and what's going to be told in the images? Um, it's a different thing. It's a very different feel. When you're writing and illustrating, um, there's nothing to differentiate when you're writing and when you're illustrating. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can do both together. Yeah. Uh, you can write, you can stop, you can do a sketch, you can imagine a scenario, and then you can write some more. Um, you can do it 
all combined. So what I, and, and that means that, that when I'm working on my own work, uh, stuff I've written myself, um, I'm drawing as I write, um, and I'm designing as I write. I think that it's quite similar to, to, to someone doing their own comic, in a way. You know, you're, you're doing everything together. And so there's a more holistic sort of feel to it. And if I want to change folios for some reason within the sort of story, I can do that. If I want a page to be completely black, I can do that. It's very sort of concrete, the way one can play with these things. When you're illustrating someone else's text, it's, it's a very enjoyable thing, because what happens is you're given the text, you sit down with it, and you're invited to mm. occupy the visual space, to actually accompany the, yeah. the, the, the text. And for me as an illustrator, that's the nicest thing to do, to be given a text and then think, right, this is a text about this thing, what can I do with it? You know, I do enjoy doing the unexpected sometimes. You know, you expect something to, to be like this, mm. just change it slightly. I like, you know, the, and which is why I work in fantasy a lot, because mm. actually fantasy is an invitation to build a world, to invent worlds round round sort of text and so i think it's a different sort of way of working but just as exciting um and you can do things visually that can accompany mm. you know words so i'm working at the moment with um, neil gaiman yeah who never writes a, a, a sort of ugly sentence you know they're beautiful poetic sort of um, resonant sort of writer and my job, in a way, is just to sort of riff off that. So yeah. if there's a little phrase or something that you, you think, well, that's a picture in itself. You know, that's yeah. what I'll do on this page. But I'll make it this big or I'll make it that big. Mm. But it, like an accompanist to, to you know, a pianist or something, you, you know, what my job is to mm. just sort of make sure that I'm, I'm in sync with a, with a writer, but then just to take it somewhere else. Yeah. Do a little bit and make it a little bit different, a little bit stranger. Well, and also with some of Neil's books that you've illustrated, for example, Coraline, that had previously been illustrated by someone else. Interesting, yeah. Does that mean you go out of your way not to see the original images? A little bit. A little bit. I mean, Dave McKean is is such an extraordinary um, artist. So I was very aware that, um, you know, my job wasn't to be Dave McKean and wasn't to sort of pretend to be Dave McKean. So um, I thought, right, what I will do with Coraline is illustrate it in a very... Um, traditional way, in a sense. You know, I wasn't yeah. going to sort of pretend to put on a new suit of clothes and sort of be something else. Um, and Dave is such a wonderfully innovative, you know, uh, artist. Mm. I was doing a sort of traditional take, um, and I like the way the two sit together. Mm. You know, you, you you've got Dave's work, and then you've got mine, and you know what they are. You know, almost from the get go, when you look at the the, the covers, you think, yes, I, I can yeah, see yeah. what you're doing there. Um, and that's been fun. And I've, I've had a similar experience. Um, again working with Neil, where there's an American illustrator working on, on a, mm. one version of the book. Scotty and Young. It's Scotty Young, yeah. you know. Wonderful stuff, wonderful, wild, exuberant, mm. crazy stuff, but, but in that beautiful, you know, controlled way mm. that Americans have. And, and there's me being, you know, sort of a bit like his, his dad, you know, yeah. that's Scotty and I'm his dad, you know, <laughs> and I'm doing this. Um, but again, I like the way the two sit together, you know, mm. um, and you can see what I'm doing and you see what Scotty's doing and it's, mm. it's, it's quite fun. And of course, you know, people who like Neil Gaiman want to buy everything he ever does. So I yeah. think Neil's gone into this thing of producing, you know, when, whenever he writes one book, it comes out in about mm. four editions, you know, which, which are all <laughs> collectible. You know. Well, it kind of reminds me in a way of like film remakes. So the Kenneth Branagh version of Hamlet sits quite happily next on the shelf to Ethan Hawke's version, for example. They're very different, but they're the same text. 
Yes, of course. I mean, I always think of you know the classic Alice in Wonderland. You mm. know, I mean, yeah. it, the fun of that is just to see the different artists in different mm. eras uh, tackling the same text. You know, and, that, yeah. and it's wonderful to see. And, and rather than that being a, a sort of um, something that, that, that restricts you, it's a it's a wonderful permission to join the party. When you're working with a writer, has there ever been an occasion where you think I have literally no idea where to go with this? The reason I ask is that um, I interviewed Dave McKean a few weeks ago and we spoke about his collaborations with David Almond. And mm, mm. on uh, The Savage and the one that isn't Slog's dad, he found them quite easy to illustrate, that, you know, that he knew what images he wanted to go with the text and which bits would be more like a comic and which would be traditional yes, illustrations. Yes. When it came to Slog's dad, he said, I have no idea how to illustrate this. I can't think how my illustrations would work with the story. And so what he did was riff on it like almost a jazz approach mm, to it, mm. that there would be a four-page silent comic that is one approach to interpreting the story and then a different four-page silent comic that's another way of interpreting the, the, the story. I think there are always solutions that way. Mm. So I think in answer to your question, I'd say, no, there's never a, you know, right. a, a problem. You know, in a way, one can illustrate anything. Now, my, um, my old tutor, um, John Lord, I mean, I, I did an event with him last, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, he's just done Finnegan's Wake. Oh, now, you know, I mean, how do you yeah. do that? I mean, but, but John's done these amazing sort of mesmeric sort of illustrations mm. to it. So in a way, I think part of what, what is enjoyable is, is to be involved in, in the book itself and, and how a page is turned. Mm. An illustration can affect that. You know, um, you turn a page and you pause, or you turn the page and you move rapidly on, or there's a, there's a flow here and, and then you interrupt the flow there. You know, that, that's the invitation I often mm. have to get involved. And that's got nothing necessarily to do with what the text is saying. Yeah. Um, and yet it's all to do with how you, you read a book. And I think this, this is, there is a sort of tactile quality. I brought along um, some sketchbooks. And this is where sort of, you know, my work starts, in a way, in book form. Um, I've, uh, I'm involved at the moment in the open house. My house is open uh, today and tomorrow. Anyone can walk in. It's a very weird experience. Um, and I've got some, some work on the walls. And whenever I look at my work on, on, on walls, you know, in frames and stuff, I look at it and I think, what, what's that doing there? You know, I mean, it's the wrong context for it. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's not, you know, of course, it's, it's, you can say it's art because art is mm. broad, but my work belongs in books or in magazines or in newspapers or in comics. It mm. doesn't belong in, on a wall in that mm. sense. This is a, the repository. I like that okay. noise, Alex. So I think it's a balance yeah. between. But the then, two. then in comics, there's this wonderful thing. There's the cover artist in comics, yeah. you know, and that that's wonderful. That that is your show off, stick on a wall, be a poster type stuff. And yeah. then the guys I love are the people who do the, the the sort of panels who really get stuck in and you know all the detail. But I mean, this this is the repository of my work. You know, it, uh, this is where things begin in a book. And when I'm de- working with sketchbook, for me, the most important thing is what the sketchbook looks like. I know that sounds crazy, but I, I collect sketchbooks and I like sketchbooks. You know, this is a really, um, this is a beautiful hand-bound sketchbook from Cairo. Uh, just lovely. And I just thought, you know... I'd be terrified of drawing it. I've, I've got to draw in pencil. You know, I've got to draw in pencil. There's something about the feel of the paper. So I did a lot of sort of little slightly, you know, intricate pencil drawings. But this is from Ryman's. Uh, cheap as anything. But I love this elastic band around it. Um, and the paper's not great. It's not great quality paper, but it is fantastic for like sort of charcoal pencil, um, and because it just it's got a bit of a grain to it, so you can just sort of fill up something like that with lots and lots of pictures. It's great. Do afterwards come and have a look at my sketchbooks. 
this is from uh, Canada. This is from um, Vancouver. Um, and I, I was on a book tour, and I try to stop myself buying sketchbooks when I'm on a book tour because, you know, I have to carry them around, <laughs> you know. Um, but I couldn't resist. I had to buy this just because it's a beautiful... I, I don't know what that is. I like to think it's moose or something. But anyway, there it is. Um, and it's beautiful, and it's quite light in a funny way. Um, and again, this, it takes ink very well, so it's a nice thing to sort of, to, to sort of draw in like that. And then this is a monster sketchbook. This sketchbook you can't travel with. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like the Book of Kells or something. And again, it's, it's, um, it's from this uh, bookbinding shop in Cairo. Um, my brother lives in Cairo, which is why I sort of visit him. And when it's I, a long I, way to go to buy books. I know. <laughs> It's, it's, it's not far, it's three hours on the plane. It's worth it, you come back with these things. They're great, and these are, you know, the Cairo prices, it's fantastic, you know. But, you know, again, with these, you know, they're, they're big and, and sort of um, monumental. So I sort of sit in front of the TV and draw in, in the open my book and draw this, you know, in this. It feels monumental, it feels, you know, slightly as if I am illuminating the Book of Kells. And I think this is where I begin, and this is where yeah. I go back to. Um, the book, start sketchbook, and then... You know, for me, it's the book. The book has the reality to it. So when a book like Goth Girl and the Ghost of the Mouse comes out, it's really important mm. to me how it looks, how it feels, you know, how the pages open, whether the edges are sprayed. I mean, it's hilarious, though. I mean, obviously, when you do a commissioned work, you know what you're doing. But it, it's brilliant that you buy a book and the book tells you what kind of materials and what kind of sketches you can oh, do in definitely, it. definitely, definitely. The, the other thing I do is when I'm writing, I will buy the book I'm going to sort of mm. write my story in mm. and fair, random fairly um, and then that book will tell me how many chapters the book is going yeah. to consist of um, so uh, Ottilie in this this book I did a while back began in a blue spiral bound sketchbook um, I should have brought that along actually um, I've got all these and that had exactly enough pages I did the whole thing in thumbnail form so mm. wrote in time it was like doing a doll's sort of uh, pitch book but I wrote all the words out mm. um, in, in sort of pages, each spread had enough for four double-page spread yeah. thumbnails on it, which allowed me to do a book of, I think it was 10 chapters, before I got to the end. Mm. So I knew that would be the extent of the book. And it was really useful knowing that, because then I could just say, OK, these are the constraints, so whatever I do is going to have to fit into this, this vessel, yeah. which, which is a sketchbook. Same with, with, with Goth Girl. I wrote that. It's got 13 chapters, because that was the space, number of pages I had in, in, in the book I, I wrote it in. I don't know if you know um, Woodrow Phoenix's work. Who's I do. Graduate. Yes, and I've met Woodrow. I mean, he's yes. taken that to its logical extreme. He went to the bookbinders and said, what's the biggest book you can make me? And so they made him a book that was a metre square <laughs> per page. And then he had to come up with a story that you could tell on a metre square page. Right, OK. <laughs> right, Rod for one's back, back, I'm yes. thinking, yes. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it, it, it is a sort of a way in, isn't it? Mm. And, and, and I think the, the great danger, you know, the tyranny of the blank page, you know, is that you can do anything. And actually what I think uh, one is looking for, or I look for often, are the constraints. I want the, the architecture. And the architecture can be anything. It doesn't have to be you know, my conceptual architecture. It can just be the shape of a book. It can be the way a page turns. And that allows me to do what I, I you know, pour the story into that. And mm. it's going to have to be that. Um, one of the dangers uh, sometimes, I think, is, is when you're sort of given too much. So I... I wrote Alienography, mm. um, a book that I started as a student and then put in a, in a, in a drawer. I have a drawer in my studio. Um, it's called 
the naughty drawer. It's where ideas I have at sort of midnight after a sort of, you know, late dinner party or something, you know, I have brilliant ideas and I write them down the next morning. I think, what was I thinking? And then I put it in the naughty drawer. So there are lots of very ill-advised things in the naughty drawer. And the alienography went in there. And that was sort of, I thought about Steve. I wanted to draw basically pornographic aliens. You know, I just wanted aliens, you know, with, with protuberances you weren't quite sure of. There was a lovely, um, I think it was Killaban, the, the, the cartoonist, did this fantastic cartoon, always stuck in my mind oddly, uh, called Genitals of the Universe. And it was just a series of very unlikely-looking sort of globular things, you know. Wasn't that H.R. Um, Geiger's career? It really was, wasn't it? That's great. Um, and uh, that stuck in my mind for some reason. So I wanted to do a whole series of really repellent aliens with, with, with sort of dripping sort of extrudences and what, whatever. And so, I, you know, I started that. Ill-advised, obviously. Um, I didn't get anywhere. Um, put it in the naughty drawer. Years later, I, I, I got out and thinking, well, actually, I still want to do something like this. I want to do a sort of guidebook, uh, you know. And I sat down and I, I had a big sketchbook, big black sketchbook, and I thought, well, I'll fill this up. That's an exercise, I'll mm. fill it up and it'll... And again, you know, I just thought, well, what are the different things I can say about aliens? You know, mm. sort of, you know, they're going to invade the earth, look out for them wearing human suits. And I just trawled through all the science fiction films I, yeah, yeah. I sort of watched. So this book, it, it, it's a children's book, apparently. Um, <laughs> but I wrote it for um, 50-year-old men who uh, grew up watching Star Wars and, mm -hmm. and you know, stuff. And uh, oddly, I think that's who I sell it, sell most of it. But, but it had to be a children's book because I work in children's books, unfortunately. Mm. But when my editor saw it, she said, oh, there's too much here. You'll have to do two books. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. And so you know, it turned into two books. <laughs> But then it became, you know, yeah. all sorts of different things were sort of added into it. Yeah, um, Trump's pop-ups. All that stuff, yeah. yeah. I mean, it just, they, they went mad with it, which was great fun. It was mm. great fun to do. But in a way, the sort of concept got slightly lost because there was a bit here and a bit there. So it became, you know, a bit of everything. And I'd love yeah. to sort of take it and sort of just turn it into a proper... I mean, it's really a book for comic fans, I would say. And it's a book for people who enjoy sci-fi and comics mm. and all that sort of stuff and it should be bound up as one and it should be a cheapish paperback mm. you know it's, it's a, and students should read it you know it's not for five-year-olds i've got to say <laughs> well thinking of you know your parallel careers as a children's illustrator and uh, a magazine illustrator presumably the difference between satire and whimsy means you have different constraints in different media even if you're doing something very similar for example with the alienography book you can have a monster that's quite similar to Geiger's alien, but it can't be exactly the same or you'll be sued, or you're yes. not very close there. Um, you can have some robots that are a lot like Daleks, mm -hmm. but different enough that you're making a joke about what you expect from robots. Conversely, if you've you... studied this, Alex, I'm very impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Conversely, if you've got a double-page spread about the government and you're depicting one as a Dalek, another as an android... I've got it somewhere on the computer, I can find it if you like... You can use the same sort of elements. You can depict Michael Gove as an alien. You can depict David Cameron as a Dalek. But you can actually say, this is Dalek Cameron. And so you're allowed to do certain things in satire that doesn't contravene copyright laws. Well, you can't do the same sort of things. Yes, I, and I, I think the reason for that is that um, one is 
in a sense, providing a comment. Mm. The other is commercial sort of proper intellectual mm. property in a way. You know, so, so nobody, I think, is going to be worried about a series of sort of Michael Gove, you know, cyber dolls. Well, maybe that could be a good idea. Maybe they'd sell very well. But, you know, that's not a problem. Whereas if you sort of blatantly, you know, take, mm. take something that, that's trademarked and, and, you know, you do your version of it, you know, it, mm. it, it's not right. I, I think it's, it's very interesting, though. There's a whole other sort of area. Is it called deviant art? It always sounds more exciting mm. than it turns out to be. Yeah. Um, but... Um, it's very interesting because that's a lot of people taking the stuff they enjoy and doing their versions of it. Um, and that goes, that leads to unexpected places. I mean, Scotty Young, for instance, he does a whole series of, which I think is really good fun, of, of junior, you know, sort Marvel. of baby sort of Marvel heroes. heroes. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great. Um, and people do all sorts of things. I just mm. saw the other day a series of Disney, um, really almost Disney spoof, but they're quite fun, Disney-esque sort of character um, posters. For the Game of Thrones, mm. I just love that, you know. Sort of, and, and it, it seems that provides a lovely comment, which is sort of saying, "Look how Disney things can be Disneyfied in a way, yeah, yeah. Um, in that cloying way." Wouldn't it be fun if you take the darkest thing and Disneyfy it? You know, it seems mm. to be that that's that's a comment in, it, yeah, in yeah. itself. But 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 when you want to develop a similar idea for different media, what are the constraints that you labour under? Do you find them? an interesting thing to push against, you know, this is what I can get away with in satire and this is what I can get away with in a children's book, the same to Oh, always, always. And, and I think um, the only reason I do anything is mm. if I get a kick out of it, you yeah. know, and that sounds horribly self-indulgent because it is. But um, it is that sort of sense of, um, you know, sort of, if, if one is going to sort of sit and sort of do one's own work, you should do stuff that you enjoy, you know. Yeah. And, and, and so uh, you know, there are sort of people from the University of Brighton Arts College here, who will you know, be shocked at how self-indulgent my message is here. But <laughs> in a sense, after you've come out of art school and had all the really sort of fantastic educating, you know, sort of uh, the, you, you can absorb, um, you walk out into the real world and you've got to sort of spend your time doing something. And, and to, to me, I mean, what I've done is always have sought out the things yeah. that I sort of enjoy, that speak to me, that, that whatever. And when I meet... Um, illustrators and I meet uh, comic people. It's self-evident. I mean, the ones that I, I, I talk to who um, haven't just sat around and waited for things to happen, have got out there and done their own things, mm. you, know, it, it, you know, not necessarily uh, work that they'll be paid for, but they want to do it. It's, it's the love yeah. of it. And I think comic people are very interesting because they do it because they love it. Mm. Um, I remember sitting on a train with Glenn Fabry, the wonderful Glenn Fabry, this is years ago, uh, when Glenn lived in Brighton. Um, I, does he? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I, I, was, I thought Glenn was in California or something. <laughs> um, well, Glenn would, um, and I'd better be careful now because he lives in Brighton, but I remember one fantastic time meeting Glenn coming back from a Christmas party, completely drunk. Glenn was, I wasn't, I was sober as a judge, but you know, coming back, and uh, he had this big cast on his foot, yeah. and I said, what happened? And he said, well, the other um, evening, I was coming back um, uh, from a party just like this, and the train stopped, and so I got out, but it wasn't at a station. That was in the days of the old slam door train, so he sort of fell on the track, <laughs> to be sort of, you know, broke his foot. Um, and Glenn was a little bit older than me, but I used to see him as this rock and roll figure. This yeah, was, yeah. you know, very exciting. Um, and and 
I said to Claire at the time I was working for The Independent on Sunday, I, and I knew the editor of the magazine well, and I thought, wouldn't it be brilliant to get Glenn, Glenn to come in and do mm. a, like a cover for something? Or wouldn't it be interesting if this chap at the time he was doing Judge Dredd and, and those sort of stuff, you got the Judge Dredd guy to come in and do like something on Guatemalan refugees or something, mm. you know, in, in that style. You know, I remember talking to Glenn, and you could just see this just he just wasn't interested because mm. what he wanted to do was comics. Yeah. He couldn't imagine why the hell he would do what I was doing, you know, yeah. a sort of political thing. Um, you get a bit of that these days, but... You do, and I admire it, but I admire like that... Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I love crossover, but I yeah. admired that zeal, because I thought, mm. actually, you were doing what you love. You know, this is what you... you, you there's too much of it. I then... I, I used to live in Kemptown, and David Lloyd lived, lived down the road. Now you're going to tell me that David still lives there, right? Because I'm looking forward to meeting <laughs> David, actually, because I haven't seen David for ages. Um, and I used to sort of pop over uh, to see David working on V for Vendetta, you know. And I knew nothing about any of this stuff, but but you know, here was David, and he was working on this, this this stuff. And I remember the Guy Fawkes mask, thinking, mm. God, that's quite cool. You know? um, but David would do a spread a day, I think, you know, a monumental amount of work. I remember sort of thinking, Wow! But he loved it. It was, you know, he couldn't not do it. Yeah. There was no question. And I think he used to sort of see the sort of stuff I do. And he'd think, why is this man doing sort of, you know, elephants sliding down banisters? What's the point of that? You know, he was in his world, you know, and, and look, you know, Viva Vendetta, what an yeah, extraordinary yeah, yeah. world that is. You Indeed. Know. No, this is what I was getting at. The knobbots, the knobbots, so... yes. They, they have no weaponry, but they go around speaking in sort of irritating voices. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that's Mrs. Nesbitt, the cat lady. She's, she's half cyborg, and she, she's the, uh, uh, she has an army of, of, of evil cats called the Goodbye Kitties. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, we've got about 10, 15 minutes for 10, 15 minutes. questions. Uh, so if anyone in the audience has a question for Chris Riddell, have we still got roving mics? Yes, we do. This is like one of those very scary job interviews. <laughs> you seem to have... Um loads of sketches online and in your book uh, are you is it almost like a compulsion are you constantly drawing all the time is it is there any time where you kind of just switch off and just like oh, i don't want to do anymore well actually i mean this, this, that's one of the things um and i i think i know other people like this you know i'm, I'm not sort of singular in any uh way with this but um i draw as as a uh, almost meditation, I enjoy drawing, the act of drawing. I, I, I like doing it, you know, it's, it's fun. Um, and so I will draw all the time. Um, and if I don't draw, I feel a little bit, you know, as if I'm, I'm not doing anything, it's, it's odd. So I find it very hard to sort of sit in front of uh, a film or, you know, watch the news or whatever, unless I'm drawing at the same time. It's just a very natural thing. But then when I, I'm illustrating, what I do is I sit down and I draw. So when I work, I'm sitting drawing, and to relax, I sit and draw. So it's a very odd kind of thing. Um, is it a different mindset? Are you, are you switching it is slightly, mindsets? It is slightly, of course, because when I'm illustrating a book, you know, I've got to think about uh, layouts, the technique I'm using, how it's working with the text, all, all those sort of things. When I've got a sketchbook in front of me, I can do whatever I want. So that becomes a, a freedom, and that, and that makes it very enjoyable. What I've found, actually, since my publisher forced me to uh, embrace social media, um, which I resisted for so many years, and then suddenly, you know, it all came crashing down on me, and I just thought, this wonderful world, and 
I've been resisting for so long. I'm a complete fool. Um, and I love it. And what I love about it is the self-publishing quality of it. It's, you can just do something in the sketchbook. And the next minute, you can just stick it up on, on, on some, you know, on, a, on a, your website or a Tumblr or, or whatever, and people can see it. And it doesn't matter if it's uncommented on, because you're just joining that journey, that huge shoal of, of, mm. of, of sort of, you know, ideas sort of shifting around. But boy, it's fun when someone does, you know, if someone posts a little thing on Tumblr, a little note, I get this little feeling of, oh, they looked at my drawing, you know, it's, it's addictive. So, so I love that. Um, so it's just given me another way to put, put stuff out there. So I think in answer to your question is, you know, I, mean, I, I draw all the time and um, I don't see the difference between working and not working in that way. I, I'm either working all the time or I'm not work, working at all. I don't know which, depending on your definition. Anyone else? Uh, hi. I wondered if you still get insecure um, about whether you're going to get more work or if it just keeps coming and coming. Um, no, I'm, 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 I'm just far too sort of eminent now. Uh, <laughs> um, I, every time I finish something, I think I'm never going to work again. You know, th- th- there's always that. And there will be people who will never employ me again, I'm sure. But, you know, it, there is that, that feeling. And I think that's being a freelance. I think that, and, and this is actually a really important thing, I think, sometimes to, uh, when I talk to students, um, in a sense, as a student, I remember this so clearly. Uh, I wanted to know what came next. I loved art school. I loved what I did there. It was this brilliant place where I was just encouraged to draw and print make and do wonderful things. But I thought, after that, what am I going to do? I, mean, I still want to do this. And I thought, I'm going to leave art college and I'm going to have to find you know, a job washing dishes or, or sort of you know, pouring coffee or something in order to be able to do what I'm doing now, you know, which is draw. And so the great revelation was finding that I could, I could do things, I could sort of work on, on things. Um, but that sort of insecurity's never left me. And so I work a lot, I suppose. I say yes to a lot of things because I always think that'll be my last job. I won't, uh, I won't do. And my wife often says to me, don't be ridiculous, no, you're fine, it's all right. But, but no, it's, it, it's ingrained. And I think it's a creative thing as well. You know, if, if you're sort of never, sort of saying, right, great, I've, mm. I've cracked it, then uh, used to sit back. I was at um, art school um, with um, Martin... Uh, Rosen? N- not Martin Rosen, dear, dear friend of mine. Um, no, um, the Where's Wally chat. Okay. I don't no, know I'm, well, Martin, anyway. <laughs> um, and I remember running into him at Walker Books um, a couple... Because I, I, he did a postgraduate in... in um, Yes. <laughs> of course, there it is. Where's Nelly? Yes, less successful. I don't know why. Uh, but um, but I remember Martin. He, he uh, Hanford, Martin Hanford. That's his name. Um, I didn't I didn't know him well, as, as obvious. Um, but I used to see him from time to time. He did etching, and I loved etching. So I used to see him. He was doing postgraduate printmaking, and um, he did crowd scenes, lots of little crowd scenes, and you know, lovely little edition etchings. And um, he left when we both left uh, in 84, um, I didn't think anything more about it. And then I met him at Walker Books a couple of years later, and I said, Martin, you know, how are you, how are you doing? And he said, uh, I'm doing quite well. I've done this little book about where you find a little character in a crowd. And I thought, that's nice. That's lovely, I thought, because I was working <laughs> in children's books, you know. Um, 
And I felt slightly in its way of condescension. You know, well done, Martin. That's lovely. And then I, I sort of met him a couple of years later. And, you know, Wes Wally was everywhere. And this time, I said, Martin, how are you? And I said, it's so nice to see you. How, how's it going? I didn't want to know. Something <laughs> was dying inside. I said, Martin, how, how's it going? He said, um, oh, it, it's going well. I said, are you still doing uh, Wes Wally books? He said, no, no, I'm not. And I thought, well, it's a craze. It's just a craze. I knew this would happen. Uh, he's going to have to now find other work, you know, like me. Um, and he said, no, no, I, 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 I don't do them anymore. I now have a studio of 24 mm-hmm. people, and they do it uh, for me. <laughs> I left. You know, so. so we were talking about insecurity, weren't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can shout, but I like this sort of formality. Absolutely. I like exactly. that. Sort Thanks. Of pause. Um, apologies if you said this right, right at the start, but uh, um, I'm interested to know, uh, you know, I... I, uh, I by the Independent, and uh, and one of the great things I always enjoyed, apart from the photographs, was your fantastic uh, cartoons in, in the Independent. Um, and uh, although I'm a lecturer, I, I I tend not to read the Observer, but when I when I do buy it, I still enjoy your cartoons. And I wondered uh, what, what happened at the Independent. Uh, why why did you move from one to the other? I love these questions. You know, it, uh, for students of newspaper history, you know, we, we, we could have another hour on this because it's, it's a good story, but uh, I'll, I'll condense it into about sort of two minutes. Um, I love The Independent passionately. It's, it's just, what a brilliant thing. I, I, when I joined it from the Sunday Correspondent, so many of the people I'd worked with on the Sunday Correspondent went to The Independent. Um, and I worked with great editors there, really inspirational editors. I think I learnt my trade such as it is at the, at the independent um i love the design i love the you know everything about the the independent apart from one senior art director who was appalling but you know in a way that was even good for me because i used to sort of you know have to avoid him that was really good you know that, i learned a lot just by avoiding this this man who had come in and sort of want to change things i was doing um but it was a great inspirational place. And my editor on The Independent on Sunday, where, where I sort of was, was working, um, was, was one of the great editors I've worked with, Ian Jack. And uh, he was so good that the, just about the time, and this is already going on too long, The Independent was, was overtaking the times in circulation. This thing was really sort of gonna go, go places. Um, and then it made a bid for the Observer. There was this very special sort of weekend where it made a bid to buy the Observer because the Observer was, and by Tiny Lonro, it was sort of, you know, he wanted to get rid of it. And there was a real chance the Independent would be able to buy the Observer and amalgamate it mm. with the Independent on Sunday, and it would have been an amazing sort of thing. Uh, and talks broke down that weekend. And at that, and then the Guardian decided, after many years of wondering what it, you know, was it going to have a Sunday paper, decided, right, we'll buy the Observer. They bought the Observer, and what they did, it's a bit like football managers, they decided they'd, um, they'd try and poach um, Ian Jack from the, uh, from the Independent on Sunday. And Ian Jack uh, decided he would go along and have an interview uh, with them. And he, expected, he said he'd take the job, you know, so he was going to do it. Um, he arrived for the interview to find that rather than being offered the job, he was being asked to go for a job interview with uh, another editor. At which point, Ian Jack had sort of resigned from the Independent, you know, because he thought it was the honourable thing to do if he was going to sort of be given the Observer job. Um, 
So Ian sort of uh, said, no, I'm not, I'm not, you know, you either give me the job or not, but I'm not going to sort of sit and have a, you know, interview. So he, um, uh, they said, oh, well, well then, then we're not, we're not going to um, uh, offer you the job. Uh, and so Ian didn't have a job. He, he, um, and he was my great editor. Um, so I was in a quandary, and I, I was at the Independent Sunday, no, and, and so there was no editor on the Independent Sunday. The deputy, another wonderful chap, um, uh, I talked to him, and he said, um, well, I've just been approached by the Observer as well to be their education correspondent, so I can't give you any advice. I don't know what to do. So I thought, oh, great, you know, there's going to be new editors. Whenever new editors come in, you just don't know whether your job's safe. So uh, I was thinking, this is it. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Been, it's been great while it lasts, but, you know, I'll, 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 it's all over. Um, and then the phone call, uh, I got a phone call that weekend, and it was from the chap they'd given the job at the Observer to. Um, and he called me up and said, uh, would I come and work at the Observer? At which point I thought, I don't want to leave the Independent on Sunday, but I don't know whether I'll have a job there. So I said, yes, so I joined the Observer. It was, I mean, I've got to say, I love the Observer, and I've enjoyed working at the Observer, but my first love will always be the Independent. You know, it's just one of those sort of things. But um, having said that, the Observer's been a wonderful place, albeit um, it has changed so much uh, over the years. Regular sort of culls of editorials sort of people, you know, editors coming and going and stuff. It's, it's never a dull moment, I tell you. Um, and presumably the flavour of the newspaper has changed since it was initially bought, because now it feels like yes. Guardian on Sunday, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but presumably when they bought it, it wasn't already like that. Oh, well, you know, um, someone like Alan Rusbridger, it's very interesting. Alan Rusbridger's an extraordinary chap. I mean, every time I meet him, he's got one of these thousand-yard stairs, which are very interesting, which editors perfect because people are always asking him for things and coming up to them. So, you know, he can, you know, Alan can just look through you, just, you know. And whenever I meet him, I have this compulsion, neurotic compulsion to introduce myself because he looks through you. I think he does, he's forgotten me. He doesn't know who I am. So, so you know, Chris, Chris Riddell, hello. And he'll say, yeah, yes, I know who you are. <laughs> you know, God, that man, manager, he, he can do it. So um, very, uh, very interesting relationship with Alan. Um, but I'm, I was recruited by, by the Observer, you see, mm. in, in the, those awkward days. So for a lot of Guardian people, I will always be tainted as an uh. Observer person, you know, died in the wall Observer person. You know, not, not, you know, not strictly to be uh, sort of uh, trusted. Um, but now I have a brilliant editor at the Observer now, who is an ex sort of Guardian chap, but he is fantastic, John Mulholland. Um, I realised I'm now getting sort of, as I say, I was very eminent because you know now my editor's younger than me, and that's just just unnatural. That's weird, you know. Um, but he's great. Uh, but newspapers are changing, and what the Guardian Observer is now, in a sense is an extraordinary um, website with a newspaper attached, you know, and, and that is a weird thing. And we will, I think we're going into a sort of virtual um, future, mm. um, and you'll get your news in some downloadable form, I think. Um, but the content's there, I think, as the world changes, in everything, comics, books, uh, publishing, and, and certainly newspapers, um, the devices we will access these things on will be different, will, will change, but what's going to happen, in a sense, is content is king. So as content providers, anyone who's telling stories, who's making comments, who's providing content, is going to be, uh, you know, find in all sorts of ways their avenues grow, you know, their opportunities grow. And I think it's an extraordinary time to be working 
in the visual arts um, because the re- one's reach is, is so much sort of yeah. uh, greater. Alex, can we just finish off with a few of mm. my author mm. things, if, sure. if we can? This is apropos, sort of Thanks. not being able to sort of stop uh, and, and not do stuff. This, these are little doodles I, I did, a series of little doodles I started doing in my the sketchbook. Author. The author. Um, and I, I sort of just as therapy, really, just, just little things to sort of, you know, make me feel better if things were, weren't going well. And then I started posting them up on my, my website. And um, they, um, they amused me and, and they turned into this thing. So, so the author surfing the zeitgeist, that, that's a good one to finish on, isn't it? Yes. Might there be a collection of these at some point? Only if I publish them myself. And wow. so if you see me on a street corner in Brighton handing these things out, you'll know I've gone down the self-publishing route. <laughs> Chris Fidel, thank you very much. Thank you. You can find more information about Chris Riddell's work by going to chrisriddell.co.uk. That's C-H-R-I-S-R-I-D-D-E-L-L.co.uk. My interview with Chris was recorded live on stage at the University of Brighton as part of their yearly Graphic Brighton Festival. As part of the cult cinema festival Cine Excess, there's a mini Graphic Brighton event featuring 2000 AD writer and co-founder Pat Mills, who'll be talking about his work setting up 2000 AD in the late 1970s and editing the controversial British action comic, the content of which was considered so controversial and shocking it was discussed in Parliament and the comic book was put on hiatus until the next issue was pulped and its content toned down. Cine Excess is taking place at the University of Brighton on the 12th and 13th of November and you can find more information by going to cine excess .co.uk. In the world of comics, there are various events taking place in London and across the home counties over the next month. Over the Line, an introduction to poetry comics, is a featured exhibition at the Poetry Cafe in London until the end of October. And you can find more information about the Poetry Cafe by going to poetrysociety.org.uk or heading to the venue itself at 22 Betterton Street off Covent Garden, London WC2H9BX. The Caption Small Press and Indie Comic Book Festival is taking place at Fargo Village in Coventry on the 10th and 11th of October. Guests include Liam Moore, Hunt Emerson, Al Davison, Paul Rainey, Paul Duffield, Laura Howell, and many more. And alongside talks by these creators from the Beano and 2000 AD, there'll be workshops a comic book quiz, and a special film screening. For more information about Caption, please go to caption.org. The next episode of Panel Borders will be broadcast at 8 o'clock on the 13th of October and the second Tuesday of every month after that. You can find all previous episodes at www.panelborders.wordpress.com. And if tonight has been your first experience of Panel Borders, I hope you'll check out some of the earlier episodes on my website. And thank you very much for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.